Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Maeve Higgins was a best-selling writer and comedian in her native Ireland when, at the age of 31, she decided to move to America. So immigration isn't just the subject of her hit podcast, but also a first-hand experience. She also co-hosts Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk on National Geographic, as well as the weekly comedy showcase Butterboy in Brooklyn with Aparna Nanchurla and Joe Firestone. She has written for the New York Times and the Irish Times, and her new book, Maeve in America, Essays by a Girl from Somewhere Else, is out now. We talk about our respective Irish ancestry, what it's like teaching comedy in the Middle East while ISIS is around the corner, and much more. So let's get to it! So Maeve, last things first. Yep. Had you been to America before you decided to move? I came here because my sister won a trip to Disney World when she was... She, I was 15. She was like, I have a lot of sisters, but she was 12, I think. Okay. She won a coloring competition, and that was a trip to Disney World. Wait, and the whole family got to go, or she had to pick one? She two? had to pick, it was for two adults and two kids, and then my mm-hmm. parents paid for three more kids. Okay. So then five kids came, and we left three at home. <laughs> How did they decide which three stayed? It was like a Hunger Games tournament, and the, the best fighter won. The least injured children were brought to Disney World. No, I think it was just the, the older kids didn't go. Okay. Yeah. So you had only been to Orlando. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good... Like, if you're going to introduce somebody to America, Disney World is, like, the perfect place to do it. Because right. there's giant snack food. They count turkey drumsticks as a snack there. Mm-hmm. Have you been? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, everyone is incredibly joyful all of the time. And there's, you know, dogs the size of humans walking around. So I was like, I love America. But those people are paid to be happy. Oh, yeah, but that's fine. Okay. <laughs> the reasons are unimportant. It's the on, reality. On that trip, did you also go to Epcot? No. Okay. Yeah, we just we just did what we had tickets for, and the rest of the time, we drove around in, in a truck. <laughs> so We had, like, no money, so we just had tickets for Disney World, and that okay, was it. Okay, so that was 15, and then when yep. you were 31, you decided to make the move. Yes. What, what was your expectation of America at um, that point? Did you have a preconceived notion of, of what you Of course, the gonna... whole world has an idea of what America is. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen every Nora Ephron film and every Woody Allen film, and I had a very romantic notion specifically about New York and about being a writer in New York and what was going to happen. And, um, like, I loved this city before I ever got here. And I think, you know, a lot of people have this experience moving to New York where it's so familiar to them, but it's all brand new as well. Like, we've never been here, right. but we feel like we have. Did you have, uh, like, what was your comedy CV? So I had done a like, lot of um, comedy festivals. Mm-hmm. I've, I had been doing comedy. I've been doing comedy since 2006, okay. professionally. Um, and so years at this point. So that's yes. Yeah. Since I was 12 years old myself. <laughs> and, um, I can't believe I made that joke. Please edit that joke out. Um, but, like, I had met lots of really cool uh Comedians, specifically, I'm talking about Eugene Merman, who's the loveliest man and also very funny, and his comedy is like right up my street. And I met him, I met Kristen Schaal, and I met all of these 
really wonderful comics uh, doing festivals around the world. So I met them in Edinburgh and then the next year in Melbourne and then, you know, the next year uh, Eugene had a festival here actually in Brooklyn for right. a while. Um, for a while, for 10 years. So I would come and, you know, see the scene that way. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of my uh, introduction to, you know, American comedy, which, as you know, it's a, ver it's a very gentle strain of it. I certainly wasn't coming they're, they're and strange. doing the clubs or anything like right. that. Yeah. What, what kind of advice did they give you about... about well, Eugene straight up lied to me. He was like, come to New York. It's so easy. You can just do whatever you want. I'm going to have a festival in my own name, and I do voices for cartoons. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll come. And then I got a visa through um, the Kansas City Irish Festival, which, yeah, they got me a year-long visa. And then after that, I was like, I'm going to go and try my hand in New York. Wait, tell me about the Kansas City <laughs> Irish Festival. You want to go? It's on every year, St. Patrick's Day. It's a huge, like, city-wide festival. They have a massive Irish population there, or Irish-American. How did they end up there? I mean, my family's ended up in Boston, very traditional. A lot of Irish in Boston, yeah. obviously. The Irish are all over America. But, like, but the, what the about town, Kansas City? Though? Kansas City, I don't know. I mean, it's the exact middle. You know, it's the mm -hmm. bang in the middle of America. So I guess, I mean, it's a nice, small, formerly industrial city. It's mm -hmm. like a nice place to bring up a family. And um, I don't know why, but... But they brought you. <laughs> they brought me. They bring over Irish artists every year. Mm -hmm. So they brought me, and that's how I got my first visa to come here. Okay. And sometimes when I tell, you know, native-born Americans, like, that's how I got my visa, they're like, oh, you need a visa? And I'm like, yes, America is a fortress. <laughs> it's really hard to get in. Of course I needed a visa. Right. So then did you decide... Brooklyn based on Eugene and a little bit and just because there was like one Irish guy living here that I that I knew that I was friendly with mm -hmm. and comedian or civilian no regular person regular person yeah aren't they so weird yes <laughs> <laughs> their jobs uh, <laughs> and, and their uh, families I said to him and their mental health intact <laughs> um, I said to him like you know I knew he had a spare room and okay. or not like a spare room but like he had a two bedroom apartment mm -hmm. and so I emailed him and he was like oh that's weird my roommate's moving out you know in, in January so I was like okay I'll come and I'll live there and I lived there for about a year was that in Park Slope or somewhere uh, it was in South Slope Church Ave okay yeah yeah, and so I was so doing all the, you know, the Bell House, uh, Union Hall, mm -hmm. uh, Littlefield, all of those kind of comedy, that comedy zone where I've largely stayed, honestly. I very rarely come and do stand-up in Manhattan. Yeah, what year was that that you came? Uh, that was four years ago. Okay, yeah. 2014. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So how... How was the adjustment process since Eugene lied to you and said it was easy? <laughs> it's funny, you know, the longer I stay here, I kind of realize the less I know about America. You know, it seems, like I said, it seems so familiar when you get here and you right. think you're on solid ground and then there's all these... Well, America has changed in the four years since you've been here. It has, And it's yeah. not your fault. It's not your fault. Well, I mean, I did vote for it. No, <laughs> I don't have a vote. <laughs> um, but uh, it has changed. But I mean, 
you know, my kind of area that I'm so curious about and that I make a podcast about and write about is immigration. And certainly immigrants weren't having a great time when I got here either. You know, Obama deported more immigrants than the previous three administrations put together. So I've always been interested in that and I've always been interested in the history of immigration. So yes, things have ramped up terribly in the past couple of years since the Trump administration, but this country's always been tricky when it comes to immigration. Well, what is your first-hand experience been? Since, so my first-hand, so then I moved on to a visa that I get teased about a lot, which is an O-1 visa, uh, Alien of Extraordinary Ability, mm. which is a very privileged one to have, obviously. It right. sounds so shooty, and I think um, I was lucky to have connections in the industry who vouched for me. You need to get these 12 letters of recommendation. Well, Mm-hmm. So get, Why 12? Is it because it's the same number as a jury? I know. I was thinking that too. Or like the 12 apostles. Or like, I just, okay. I don't know. It's, you know, like so many of these rules, it's very opaque. So who did you pick for the 12? I got, I didn't know uh, everyone. My manager helped me. And you have to, you know, kind of, it's a big favor mm-hmm. because you're asking them to vouch for you to the u.s government right and um, so yeah it was just you know eugene gave me a letter actually and um, yeah but were the other 12 like all comedians or no like industry people comics um tv people like a mixture mm-hmm. they have to be high up in whatever field you can get an O one right, visa sure for for science or for yeah or for sports or mm-hmm. there's a number of fields you can get it for and you just have to find people in that field who are you know high achieving themselves I guess how how long did that process take it takes a long t- it, it took about four months I think okay but I'm saying this was my I process. was imagining longer actually I mean it could take longer that was like a lot you know we rushed it but uh, that's you know. I'm so lucky to be able to get that and I think it really helps that I'm white and I'm European mm-hmm. and I think there's lots of people who English speaking possibly yeah of course who possibly um, you know deserve to be here and but that's not that's not available to them what does what does the O1 visa allow you to do it allows you to work wherever for three years for three years yeah okay so how long is that when I mean I'm on my second one now so oh, okay. yeah yeah was it hard to re- renew it? No. Oh, well, no. That's, that's comforting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great visa. That's what I'm saying. I'm super lucky. Have you, at this point, have you... Th- or when you, dis- when you had to renew, did you think about pursuing the green card or... No, you're not... Qu- I'm not qualified for okay. green cards. Yeah. Okay. Or becoming a citizen. So my the path is for me, yeah, I have to is- get two O-1s and then I can apply for a green card and then I can apply for citizenship unless that changes which it's likely to change because of Trump but you have but you have to wait until the end of the second one yeah okay interesting yeah okay so so when Trump wins that's when you decide to start the immigration podcast no we've been working on it for a year before that oh yeah yeah because like I said I've always been especially since moving here also I grew Mm -hmm. up in a place called Cove in Ireland which was a huge uh, port of leaving over a million people left from Cove out of like a population of six million in Ireland because it's a harbour town and the next stop is New York so a million people left from there, and I grew up knowing that history. You know, we learn all about it in school. It's so like I suppose super that's sad. probably where my family left from. 
It's, I mean, most likely. Where were your family from? Uh, McCarthy's were from Cork. Cork, Kerry. Yeah. Cork and Kerry. Uh, it's, pro- it's likely, yeah. Yeah. They arrived in Nova Scotia first. Um, because Nova Scotia is closer than New York. And then came down from Nova Scotia. That's in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Because Canada's even closer. Do you know when that was? During the famine. Okay, okay. So then Ellis Island wasn't open yet or... Yeah. The the first person through Ellis Island left from my hometown oh, wow. anymore. Yeah, she she was a seventeen year old, and mm-hmm. she had two little brothers with her, and they came unaccompanied, uh, undocumented, you know, minors, and the three of them just sailed in and were welcomed and reunited with their parents who had come to New York before that. Oh. So when I hear about like their story and then I compare it to today, it's really right. striking. Right, because they're teenagers reuniting with their parents. And now yeah, and they don't have papers, they don't have a passport, they don't have any qualifications. But, you know, at the time, America was welcoming white people, just like now. So I think that's what makes the difference. I think race is huge in right. immigration. Although there was a period that uh, Irish Americans love to talk about when the Irish weren't welcome. Oh, I love talking about that too. Give me two drinks and I'll just be like, I remember the signs. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. (laughs) And that's very true. And I think it's important to include that in in the convo because like there was times when it was hard to be Irish here. And there was, you know, when Annie Moore, that kid arrived, you know, Catholic churches were being burnt down on the Lower East Side, just like mosques are being attacked or like those poor sick men were killed in their temple. You know, that was all... Nativism was huge then, too, and now it's it's back, you right. know? It was the it was the know-nothing party yes. in America, which I think is, is quite a good name for today. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. They have so many similarities with the Tea Party. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's, so it is funny when you kind of look into it, there's all these echoes of the past, and they're, they're getting louder and louder. But I think what's interesting now is, you know, the White House is full of Irish-Americans, and Pence, oh, my God, Mike Pence and Paul Ryan love to talk about being Irish. It's like their favorite thing to do. Really? Mike Pence goes on and on about how his granddad came from Chicago, or no, his granddad came from Mayo, moved to Chicago, became a bus driver, and was like, you know, dragged himself up by his bootstraps or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, he got in. He didn't even have a passport. He didn't have a visa. He was allowed in. If he had been Chinese at that time, he wouldn't have been allowed because there was a ban on Chinese people. Plus, he wouldn't have gotten a job as a streetcar driver in Chicago if he was black because they didn't employ black people. So he was already really lucky. Right. I mean, this is me practicing a conversation with Mike Pence on you, <laughs> which is kind of unfair. <laughs> right, because, uh, well, there are, there's no other, well, there are other women around. Yeah. So, so this is good practice yeah. because Mike Pence would want to make sure there's other women in the room. Yeah, Mike Pence he, only, he's, he's really him. frightened to be on his own with a girl. <laughs> and in my case, he should he be do? frightened what because do? I know what I would do. I would just tell him all about his granddad's history and how his granddad was a lazy bum. <laughs> no, I'm sure his granddad was great. And I'm sure his granddad would be turning his grave to see what Mike Pence is doing now, which is not allowing Syrians into the country. Right. There's uh, not Syria, but uh, Iraq. You write mm-hmm. a book about teaching comedy in Iraq. Yes, I did a how, comedy workshop there. How did that come about? <laughs> well, you didn't get asked? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I had such a hard time convincing people to go with me, but... But when was this? It was in 2016. Okay, Yeah. so fairly recently. Yeah, um, you know, in fact, ISIS were still in control of Mosul, and we were in Erbil, which is 50 miles up the road mm-hmm. from Mosul. And so... 
when I said I was going, I said to people, I'm going to Kurdistan. Like, do you want to come and do a, a workshop? I didn't specify like which part of Kurdistan, which was the Iraqi part. But actually, it was very safe and we had a brilliant time. Who set that up? Who, as comedians like to say, who books that? Yeah, who books that? <laughs> hey, can you uh, get me on in Iraq? Yeah. Can you get me a, a quick five uh, in the war zone there? Come can on. A, come on. Yes, <laughs> so who does book that? Did bucks. you book that? Or how did... No, you know, it was um, how it came about was the the British and Danish governments run a kind of a soft power um, let's build up alternative narratives to ISIS in ISIS-stricken areas, which is to encourage all the creative people there to keep doing their thing and Mm -hmm. give them a platform and an outlet so there's this like alternative to like the ISIS are very good when they were at their height at uh, tech stuff and they were really good at making things go viral so I think uh, some of the kind of allies got in together and said like let's support people who are creating instead of oh, instead so of destroying other YouTube videos that show what life is like yeah and just other, to other slices of life reflect normality mm-hmm. you know the day to day kind of fun stuff like we have in our sketches here or our satire or our New Yorker cartoons and and that's what I found when I went there. It was really, like, extraordinary because... So did they reach out to you or did you reach out to Yeah, they did. I knew one of the guys working there. It's called Yala. That's mm-hmm. the name of the organization. Yala. And I knew one of the guys. Uh, he used to be a journalist here in New York. So we were friendly. And he, he was like, you know, we're thinking of doing a comedy workshop. There's this real interest in comedy within the some of the communities in Erbil, mm-hmm. both Kurdish and Arabic speaking and, you know, young kids and then older guys too um, and so I straight away was like yeah that sounds brilliant like that sounds amazing and then I kind of emailed like basically almost every comic that I know and asked them you know would they be up for it and finally Mo Hammer do you know Mo yeah he came with me okay. and Joe Randazzo who wasn't oh, right. yeah a New York he, comic and he sublet a room in my apartment before I did he to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. yeah so he yeah so he's gone to LA now too yeah and so he um he came from LA so did Mo and we all met in Turkey and we were all a bit apprehensive wondering what we would find and also like it's kind of bold to like go to Iraq and be like we're here to teach you comedy right and it's It's also like like, it's not like a USO trip where you're going to the military bases and everything's chaperoned no no it's not like that at all I personally wouldn't do that this is a civilian mission yeah, it wasn't a mission. Well, <laughs> I think there's a history of like a field trip, failed missions, American missions in Iraq. Um, field, this is a American, a, British, Danish field trip. It was a it was a comedy workshop. Comedy workshop, and you know we didn't have it wasn't directly related to them. They just fund the organization. Mm-hmm. So the organization is run by Iraqis who already had like radio stations and websites mm-hmm. and you know um, blogs and just comedy sketches. But if Kurdish and Arabic, do they have translators? Or yeah, it, okay. two translators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was really fun. Like, And it was really, um, you know, I had to catch myself a few times because I was kind of expecting people to be, I don't know, like sad or, uh, you know, wallowing. And, you know, Iraq has been completely war-torn. There's no family that hasn't been touched by tragedy there. Of course. But I got there and I was like... Oh my God! There was people, exact. There was like you know, goofy young guys getting into comedy to meet girls. There was like sarcastic, shy women who like drew cartoons. You know, 
exactly who you'd meet here. Like exactly who I've met in New Zealand doing comedy, in Edinburgh doing comedy, in Ireland doing comedy. Was their access to social media the same or no? Or did they, uh, they yeah, very much so. Okay. Instagram is absolutely huge there. Um, in, in Saddam Hussein's days, of course, everything was like super tight and withheld. But now it's like, yeah, there's a huge Facebook is enormous and it's a really were lovely they, outlet. Were they more interested in learning how to, how to make videos then? Yeah, or I think I think there versus, was a, versus live stand up was kind of a new enough form there. Like they were really good storytellers, and also there because of like Snapchat and Instagram, a lot of the lads there were absolutely brilliant at producing really funny videos. Right. And Joe really was impressed with that. And then myself and Mo worked with them on kind of live stand up, and we talked a lot about just using creativity and comedy as a, as a, as a way of being resilient and as a way of kind of expressing yourself and as a way of um, connecting with other people. And I think that's what um, really shone through for me. You know, I'm still in touch with lots of them. And like one of the lads, um, Mr. Aiko, his name was, like Mm -hmm. his like stage name. (laughs) And he had a moustache. He's like a little sturdy Kurdish guy and quite famous there. Um, And, you know, I've been following him on Instagram since then. And we say hi to each other. And I like pictures of he's got these really cute little boys. But he was in part of the fight to liberate Mosul. You know, he's in the Peshmerga, like. And I just thought that's, you know, it's extraordinary that he manages to keep... comedy? Yeah. And he's like a goofy. He is such a good... Like, he got up. We had a show at the end of the workshop. And he told a joke that I couldn't understand... But I know it was something about, like, when your wife is angry, you have to know which button to press. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and afterwards, he was like, hey, like, I'm sorry, that was a bit much. I was like, look, you don't have to tell me the joke, but I, <laughs> I get it where you're coming from. <laughs> and then he was, you know, fighting ISIS. Wow. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is you can, all those things can be in that one person. American comedians seem so weak. Oh, my God. We're the weakest. I mean, my sister's a personal trainer, and she's always like, when I look at comedians, you all have these weak forearms, and you're all overweight and everything. I'm like, check, check. <laughs> and it's true. We're just the, you know, we're, we're real little weaklings. Yeah. But not are, if you're a Kurdish, because you also have to fight wars. Are there things either from... Uh, growing up in Ireland in that comedy scene or from even what little you experienced in Kurdistan <laughs> are there things that you wish American comedy clubs would, ado- would adopt or American comedy audiences um, I mean I find everybody so similar I really do. I mean, definitely here, specifically the crowds that I play in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. or when I go to L.A., they're quite careful about what they laugh at. And sometimes, like, I don't know, they get scared about laughing at certain things. But they're they're much bawdier and, like, livelier. So maybe a little bit less fear. Is the presentation the same, though? I've heard Americans talk about going over to Ireland Mm -hmm. and it's in saying that they love it because it's different in terms of how comedy is presented? Um, I mean, certainly the pub that I started doing open spots in Mm -hmm. is called the International in Dublin. And that is, there's no mic. The place is packed. It's in like a very dangerous attic of a pub. It feels like maybe there's a funeral on, like... What, and everyone's really drunk and kind of happy like a, and sad like at the same time. Yes, delivering, it feels like a wake. Delivering eulogies. Yes, it, that's what it feels like. And everyone's on top of you. And so that kind of delivery, you have to really, like, you're right there, you're looking at them in the eyes. Mm-hmm. And so I think the energy of that really does, like, uh, make or break you. Well, I, you know, 
I noticed you said, you know, you perform mostly in Brooklyn or in L.A. Yeah, and I don't do, really do perform wanna, that much anymore. Yeah. Do you want to break into the comedy club scene proper? No, mainly I write now, but I do a show every Monday at Littlefield with my friend, Aparna. Right, Butter Boy. Yeah, Butter which, Boy. Which took over the night train yes. spot. Yeah. Was Why it is did, no more. Did you have to get talked into that? or? No, I was happy because the girls were doing it too. Mm-hmm. So they're like two super funny friends of mine, so I knew that would be different than just That's having Aparna, to do stand-up. Nantrilla and Joe Firestone. Yes. And what is what is kind of your overarching goal with that show? Uh, sex tape. Yeah, just want to be. <laughs> it's just to have a fun time, see my friends, and get to uh, you know have a place where really good comics come on. We have really great lineups every week. At the risk of sounding like I'm a barker outside the show, it's like a really fun place to see new and established mm-hmm. voices. So. But other than that, you're mostly focused on writing in, yeah. the, po- in the podcast. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. So I'm writing for the New York Times, and then my podcast is Made in America, Immigration. Mm-hmm. And then I have a new climate justice podcast that's called Mothers of Invention. Mothers of Invention. Yep. And that's, wait, climate justice? Yeah. <laughs> I'm scared now because John is going to be outside. But, um, yeah, so those are, well, that's what I'm mainly doing. And Wait, then what's climate justice? It's the intersection of climate change and human rights. Okay. Yeah. I know nobody. So basically, it's. Tell um, me more about how they intersect. Well, with climate change, human rights are often abused in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. So if you have like a climate catastrophe, like remember uh, Katrina in New Orleans, right. the way the people were treated after that. Or Puerto Rico now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's all about addressing uh, human rights mm-hmm. when, it comes to, when it comes to climate. Okay. Yeah. So the, the former president of Ireland started a podcast and I'm helping her to do it. <laughs> Wait, with the former president yeah. of Ireland? Yeah. Yeah. Mary Robinson. So are you doing that via Skype, or, ha- or, or, uh, or is she over here on a video we, as well? No, I went and recorded it in Ireland. So, yeah, there's six episodes recorded, and it just started last week. Oh, that's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I, I usually end each podcast with, yeah. with asking my guest for what kind of advice they would pass along. Mm-hmm. So if there's somebody... I guess not even just not not just Ireland, but anywhere in the world. Yeah. Since you've you've been talking to Mr. Echo and other people, what kind of advice would you give them in terms of breaking into comedy in America? But also, since you're so well versed in immigration, staying in America, <laughs> breaking into America, but then being able to stay here. I uh, get married to an American mm-hmm. is probably the most straightforward way that you can stay here, <laughs> truly. <laughs> um, and I think breaking into comedy here, I think, you know, finding your own voice will always help you wherever you end up. So I think looking at comics like Maria Bamford or like Eugene Merman, who've really stuck to their guns over the years and really formed their own voice and their own little community around them, uh, they're the ones who have longevity and they seem to follow their own curiosity and only do what they care about. And I think if you do that, that will stand you in good stead wherever you are. How do do you make sure that you you maintain your voice? Um, I think you have to kind of check in with yourself and I think it, I think you'll know because it won't work when you 
when you veer off course. Mm -hmm. Like whenever I try and like submit for pack submit packets for late nights, it doesn't work because that's not me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it just doesn't work unless you do that. So if it's not working, you should check in with yourself. Well, thanks for checking in with me, mate. I (laughs) really appreciate it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.